And fortunately, I think, uh, I think there may be a, a gospel problem in our culture today. Um, and, and maybe not even the culture, but also in the church. Uh, m- many people do not understand the gospel, or, or maybe they misinterpret what it is. And there seems just to be a lack of clarity at times uh, on such a major topic that, you know, the scriptures seem to be clear about. For example, I was reading a, an article in the Gospel Coalition where they were going over some statistics concerning the gospel, and this, this is what it says. So a survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University found that American adults today increasingly adopt a salvation-can-be-earned perspective. Almost half of all adults believe that if a person is generally good or does enough good things during their life, they can earn a place in heaven. Now, over half of all Americans who would describe themselves as Christians, okay, now we're talking about just Christians, also accept a works-oriented means of God's acceptance. Even those associated with churches whose official doctrine says eternal salvation comes only by embracing Jesus Christ as Savior. Right, these, these numbers are, are pretty staggering. Think about it. Over half of people who would call themselves Christians would accept a gospel where they can either earn their salvation or they keep their salvation by doing good works. This idea completely diminishes the work of Christ and what he's done for us. And it, and it does not take serious the biblical picture of God's character. And when we get the gospel wrong, or when we do not probably understand why the incarnation of Jesus is so absolutely necessary for us, we put ourselves in a very dangerous position. The gospel is the only thing that saves us and keeps us. And in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is abundantly clear about what the gospel is and what it means for those who want to follow and who are currently following King Jesus. Right? God has saved us through Christ by himself and for himself, so that we may radiate the glory, his glory, in all the earth. This is the sermon in a sentence. If you take anything away from today, this is what I want you to take away from the sermon. God saved us through Christ, by himself and for himself, so that we may radiate his glory in all the earth. Now before we get started, I think that'd be a little, it'd be good to get some background on the book of Ephesians and Paul and all that jazz. So Paul is in prison currently, and he's writing a letter to the Ephesian church. Now, you can read about how the gospel reached the city of Ephesus in Acts 19. But Paul discloses the reason for writing this letter at the beginning, in chapter 1. He is writing to clarify how Christ has revealed the mystery of the will of God and what it means for the followers of Jesus in Ephesus. Now, the the first three chapters are Paul setting the theological grounds for, for what it means for us to be in Christ. And then the second half, chapters 4 through 6, is now Paul applying that to their daily lives. And we find ourselves in, in our text this morning at the beginning of Paul's logic about why we are so blessed in Jesus. Now before we do, I want us to pray Paul's prayer together that he prays for the Ephesian church at the end of chapter 1. So pray with me real fast. God, you are the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. May give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, 
that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things, all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. That is the glorious prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians and that we pray today as we get into who Jesus is and what is the gospel. And so as we get into our text this morning, it begins with a very long sentence. So the first seven verses in chapter 2 are one big long, one big long sentence in the Greek. And the, the subject of the sentence and the main verb does not show up until verses 4 and 5. It's really fascinating. But don't worry, we'll get there. We'll get there. So just hang in there with me. So let's begin. So Paul begins in verse 1. And you were dead. Here is the starting point of his argument. The Ephesians are presented with a problem. They are dead. Paul makes clear to the Ephesians they were dead because of sin. They're not sick. They're not hurt. They're not paralyzed. They were dead. This death Paul is referring to is one of spiritual death. And this becomes clear as he is going to go on a side tangent for the next two verses about what it means for the Ephesians to be dead. He says they were dead in their trespasses and sins. Now think back to Genesis 2, where God tells Adam that if he eats from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he will surely die. And when Adam and Eve eat from the tree, they do not die physically. Their death is one of spiritually. They are cast out of the garden and from the communion with God, and they experience death spiritually. The story of Genesis then unfolds, showing how the effects of sin have damaged creation and have corrupted humans to the very core of their being. I mean, think with me in Genesis 6-5, right, right before the flood. God is going to flood the earth because of the wickedness of man. And it, it reads in Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. And even, even after the flood, we read in Genesis 8.1 that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Because of sin, man is so corrupted to the very core and it's only the grace of God that everyone is not as evil as they could be. I mean, again, Think of David in Psalm 51. He has just committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he went and committed murder by having her husband killed. And as he is lamenting over his sin before God, this is what he says in Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is crushed, and he sees something is so desperately wrong with him to his core, and he understands the depravity of his heart and the wickedness that is so deeply rooted within him. And Paul is stressing this fact here to the Ephesians, that they are dead and are incapable of doing anything about it. 
Although they were living and breathing, they were dead spiritually. Their life is in opposition to God, and they had no right to stand before him. And they, within themselves, possessed no power to do anything about it. They could not resurrect themselves by what they do or could do. Likewise, we are dead. And some of us could still be dead this morning. Spiritually, that is. But what does that mean to be spiritually dead? To be spiritually dead means that we have no desire for God or the things of God. And that you would rather do what you want, doing what is right in your own eyes. You would rather act in a way that brings yourself glory and praise rather than God. There is no desire for God and no desire to walk in the truth of Scripture. And we would rather disobey God than obey God. I know this was true of my life. And look with me in verse 2. Paul continues. He said, following the course of this world, spiritual death is actively and continually doing what is natural to our flesh. That is sinning. And Paul, Paul again says in Galatians 5.19 exactly what is sin, what those sinful desires are. Right? He says it's immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and anything else like these. Now this is a long list, and each one of us used to or still are carrying these things out. We are by nature sinners under the power of sin and Satan. Just as a, a leopard by nature has spots or a, a zebra has stripes, so, so we by nature are sinners. And just like the leopard or, or zebra can't change its spots or change its stripes, we, we are unable to change our sinful nature in and of ourselves. I mean, look back, look back on, on your own life and count the number of times you've lashed out in anger or rage. I know I have. Whether that be at your spouse or kids, friends, family, or maybe just that random person in traffic who cut you off. The same goes for idolatry. Count the number of times you've prioritized someone or something over God. I have also done this. What about lust and purity? Even lying and avoiding the truth. We are all sinners by nature. I mean, I think, I think the, the best way to see this is to look at kids we don't, <laughs> you don't have to teach your kids how to be bad, right? They don't come to you saying, hey, mom, hey, dad, I'm just the most perfect kid. I don't know how to lie. Can you teach me how to lie? Or can you teach me how to hit others? Or can you teach me how to bite or hit? Right? That's, that's not the case at all. Well, I mean, what, are, what are parents constantly doing? They're constantly trying to establish right and wrong within their kids. Trying to establish good morals within their kids. And the only reason we know what is right is because we are made in the image of God and we have the word of God. I mean, we are are so corrupted to the core that we have to be taught good because being bad comes so natural. And Paul is highlighting that here to the Ephesians. They were just like those who walked in the desires of the flesh. The same power that was working in the sons of disobedience is the same power that used to be working in them. And not only them, but Paul goes, Paul goes in and says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. 
He and everyone else lived under the power of sin and Satan. No matter who you are, whether it's Jew, Gentile, American, European, Asian, African, no matter who you are, all lived in the same passion of the flesh. By nature, all are sinners. Paul says that we are like ch- we that they were the children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. I mean that all of mankind stands in opposition to God, deserving the just wrath, because He is so holy and perfect. God cannot allow any imperfection to stand before Him, because that would not make Him God. And this idea of that we've been talking about this morning, this natural sinful inclination in everyone, this is the idea of, of original sin. Because Adam in the garden did not trust God, deciding what was right in his own eyes, taking the fruit, disobeying God, we have incurred guilt. So much that him and his wife incurred guilt, and then that is now passed down to us. Their minds were altered, their hearts hardened, their nakedness became their shame, and their unity was sown with dissent. Think about in the New Testament. What does Paul say in Romans 5? That through the sin of one man, Adam, sin was imparted to all men. Therefore, death reigns upon everyone. And again, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam, all die. Because of Adam, the nature of humans has been tainted and we are sinners because, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Sin is not something external to us that we just simply do. It is internal. We do because we are. Now, however, however, this has been a lot in the first 15 minutes or so. It's been pretty, pretty dire news. So just get your hopes up. This is not the main point of Paul's argument. He's setting us up for something amazing and glorious. And, and the, same, the same goes for in Romans. He's setting himself up for something glorious. In 1 Corinthians, setting himself up for something amazing and glorious. And right now to the Ephesians, he's setting us up for something amazing. So let, let, us, let us continue on. So four verses in, finally the subject of our sentence shows up for all you grammar geeks out there. The subject shows up four four verses in and we get to our main point. And Paul is providing a great amount of emphasis in what he's about to say by doing this. Although we were hopeless and although we are bounded by our sinful nature, read with me in verse five, four and five. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. This this is glorious. When we were dead and unable to do anything about it, God did it for us. God is the active agent in saving. He saved you and he saved me by himself and for himself. Why? Because that is who he is. He is merciful, he is gracious, and he is loving. And these are not just simply qualities that God possesses or embodies. Right? He is the very definition of these qualities, of these attributes. These attributes are considered attributes because they find their very definition in God's being. And we don't need to look any further than Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7 to get a beautiful picture of who God is. He reveals himself to Moses. And this is what he says. He is a compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, 
who is abounding in loving kindness and truth. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But he is also just. And that's why we need a sacrifice. And this is how the Bible most readily speaks of God's character. It is not a reaction of something we did or can do. Right? We, don't, we don't earn God's grace. We don't earn his mercy because there's something nice in us. It's simply he acts this way because it is, he is this way. This is who he is. And this is perfectly seen in Christ's work. Look back at the text, verse 5. Our main verb, God has made us alive. God has made us alive. God is the subject performing this action. He and he alone has saved us, has made us alive and brought us out of death. How did he do this? Through Christ. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Trinitarian God has acted alone to save sinners. Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that you and I could not, offering himself up as the perfect substitutionary sacrifice so that we may experience the merciful, loving, and gracious character of God. And as we have already seen, we were dead in our sins, standing under the just wrath of God. But Christ was slaughtered on the cross, willingly for you and me, displaying the very heart of God. He went there so we would not have to. He bore our sins. He bore our griefs so that we would be counted righteous before God on account of the work of Christ. And not only has he sacrificed himself, but he has been raised from the dead, conquering sin and death, and death no longer has any, has any hold over us. And then he ascended into heaven, being seated at the right hand of God, displaying his power and authority over everything. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. If you're in Christ, friends, let this comfort you this morning. That when you were dead, Christ died for you so you may have life. If you're struggling this morning, maybe with doubts or fears, anxieties, worries, be comforted. Christ died and was resurrected to bring you life. So therefore, run to him, believe in him, trust in him. He has freely bestowed grace on you and continues to bestow it upon you. Likewise, for anyone struggling in the battle of sin, whether it be lust or pride or anger or envy, greed, whatever it is, take heart. Christ has freed you and the Holy Spirit is working on you, transforming you into the likeness of Christ one day at a time. I mean, what, what does Paul say? He, he interrupts his thought again in verse 5. He interrupts it again because he cannot help but get to the punchline. It's like he's so excited to give the answer. He's like that friend, if you have that friend where you go to a movie or whatever it is, and you're watching it, and you know there, there's this big revealing moment at the end, but your friend can't help you to tell you what's going to happen. He's like, oh, he's the bad guy. And you're like, come on. I wanted to figure that out myself. But instead of ruining the movie, Paul just wants to be so clear. He's so excited 
about the hope that can only be found in Jesus. For he interrupts, he goes, for by grace you have been saved. He just inserts it real fast. And it's not very telling, but this is in the, it's in the perfect tense. Meaning that it's a, it's a past completed action that has ongoing implications. For you were saved by grace, and you will continually and forever be saved by the grace of God. As, as one, of, one pastor puts it, you, you cannot out the cross of Christ once you are his. Once he's raised you, spiritual life, you will never be able to out the cross of Christ. So, I mean, look, look at the story of the prodigal son in, in Luke 15. The father had two sons, and one of them wanted his inheritance early. So he could go and do a bunch of wicked and selfish things. And at the very least, it's a slap in the face of the father. So the son took the money and he left. He squandered it very fast and he was broken homeless. And one day he found himself in a pigsty at rock bottom. So he thought he would go home and beg his father, please father, like just, just make me at, at least a, a hired worker maybe, please But to his surprise, as he was going to the father's house, the father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran to him, and kissed him. The father then proceeds to have the finest robe put on him and a fattened calf slaughtered for him, saying that he is still the father's son. Once you are an adopted son or an adopted daughter of God, you will never be unadopted because of the work of Christ. Therefore, we boldly run to him. And if you are not a son or not a daughter of God yet, believing in Jesus Christ, I ask you to come this morning and experience. Experience the grace of God that is only found in Jesus. Be transformed from death to life by repenting and believing in Christ. Come and taste the sweetness of Christ so that you may not have to remain under the just wrath that we all deserve. You do not have to remain dead in your sins. Come to Jesus and he will wash you white as snow. But, but, but why, why has God done all of this? I mean, let us look back in our text. He has made us alive. He has raised us up. And he has seated us with Christ so that, it's verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. It is all about grace. He saves us by grace to further display his grace. God is so grace-filled that in saving us by grace he displays his amazing grace in a great way that will resound throughout eternity. And in looking back on this grace we have received in Christ, it prompts us to look forward to the unending grace that we will continually receive and rejoice in because God is gracious by nature. Salvation is a work of grace from start to finish and everything in between. But also, I think, I think another thing should be noted here. This is, this is the most humbling news we could ever hear. That there is nothing lovely in us that saved us. God simply decided from eternity to give us this gift through Christ by the power of the Spirit working in us. 
And, and that, that should radically change the way we view ourselves and the way we, we view other people. It's like, it's like Paul saying, don't be, don't be puffed up or deceived here. It's only the grace of God that we see our sin for what it is and have the power to do anything about it. And this should humble us in our interactions with others. And it, and it can become really easy to, to look at your life, to me to look at my life, and begin comparing ourselves to others. Well, I'm, I'm doing pretty good right now. I don't do what so-and-so does. Or, and I've worked so hard, I've become so righteous, and I'm so pious and virtuous. As if, as if we had anything to do with it. And as a result, we place ourselves above other people, and instead of showing them the grace that each one of us has freely been given, we look down on them as if we are better. And instead of looking towards the grace of God has shown us in Christ, we begin to look at our actions and think that they are what make us righteous. And this is what Paul wants to, to clarify. This is what he wants to weed out in our next section. That we are, we are saved for good works. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. Follow along with me again in, in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Paul reiterates here what he said back in verse 5. He wants to make it crystal clear on what it means, what he means by salvation. And, and he goes on. And this is not of your own doing. This is a gift of God. The Ephesians did nothing to earn this grace. Rather, it is a gift. Paul says it is a gift of God. In the letter to the church of Rome, he calls it a free gift. God has freely given this gift of grace in Christ. And it cannot be earned. Also, in verse 9, he goes even farther. He says, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul has just made clear what he means. Grace is a free gift given by God through the work of Christ. It cannot be earned by any work of man. Even the faith we have is the work of the Spirit in our hearts, giving us faith to believe. All the glory in salvation goes to God, none to us. Our works before God or as the Bible puts it, filthy rags. If we could earn our salvation in any way, this would retract from the graciousness of God and it would diminish what Christ has done for us on the cross. We bring nothing to the table. Even after we have been justified and saved in Christ, and saved by Christ, the, the works that we do are still God's. Continue on with me. Look, look in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. God has molded our hearts and our minds into completely new creations through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the good works that we do are not even ours. I mean, what does the text say? They said that God prepared them beforehand so that we should walk in them. When I, when I give money to someone in need or me and my wife prepare a meal for someone or we have people over and we, we do something nice for them or, you know, you, you have an opportunity and you share the gospel 
with somebody. These, these gain me no righteousness. They are the Lord's good works that he has prepared for me and for you to walk in, to display his glory. It's interesting. The, the word workmanship here, it's very important. In the Greek, it's, it's po- poema. Say that with me. Poema. poema. It's kind of nice. It rolls off the tongue kind of nice. But it's, it's where we get our, our word poem from. And it, it's key to understanding Paul. Just like a poem is so elegantly crafted with beauty to say something great and profound, even more so, God is crafting us to follow him and the good works he has prepared for each one of us so that his beauty and his creativeness that only he has, he's the only creative one, can be seen through us. And the glory, the glory does not fall on the artwork. Right? If you go to an art museum and you look at all this beautiful art, right, you're not like, you don't just simply say, wow, this, I'm going to need to Worship this artwork. It's amazing. No, where does your mind go? It goes to the artist. The artist who created this beautiful artwork. And therefore, God is the artist in our salvation and in our works that he's prepared for us. He's beautifully crafted us and he's beautifully crafting the works for us to walk into. He is so detailed that he puts us in specific situations with specific gifts and specific interests and with specific people who we come in contact with so that they may see their creator and that they may find hope and joy in the grace of Jesus. If you're in Christ, take heart where you are today or where you are tomorrow because God is the sovereign artist who is displaying his glorious beauty through you in the most intentional and amazing ways. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. This is the gospel this morning. We are simply sinners in need of saving. And God has saved us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus alone. It is all of grace and it is none of works. And it's so gracious of the Lord that he would orchestrate it in such a way that he would allow us to participate with him in displaying his glory and beauty to the world so that he may be known and people may be mended, healed, and find grace in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father God, you are so amazing. Lord, you are beautiful, you are magnificent, glorious. Lord, we are so undeserving. And yet, you have stepped into our lives and radically changed and transformed us. God, let us run to you. Lord, for you are gracious by nature. Lord, let our hearts be so stirred up for the gospel and let us, let us know the gospel and let it just sink into our hearts and our minds that we live differently. We, we view you differently. We view the world around us differently, Lord, that we have been changed and transformed and that you are changing and transformed others right now sovereignly.
as you sit on your throne, orchestrating everything. Lord, let us hang on to this truth and let it sink into our hearts that we may cherish you, we may love you, and we may walk by your spirit into what you have prepared for us. And we ask this all in the name of King Jesus. Amen.